what is the use and function of the Old Testament, and especially Psalm 110 in the book of Hebrews. In his recent work, Jared Compton suggests that the role of Psalm 110 is foundational for the exposition and argument of Hebrews. Join us now as we talk with Jared Compton about Psalm 110 and the logic of Hebrews. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Jared Compton earned his Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He has served as a New Testament professor at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary and is now a pastor at Crossway Community Church in Bristol, Wisconsin. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Michael. So, Jared, tell us about yourself and how you came to write a book on Hebrews. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. before I begin, uh, I, I want to say just thanks to you, Michael. I'm really grateful for this invitation to be your guest talk about Hebrews and my book. Um, You know, as I was thinking about the podcast, I thought the timing of this interview is perfect since my book is set to be released in paperback later this year. I think it's in August. That's exciting. Yeah, it is, which means it's finally going to be affordable for most of uh, our listeners. The price drops incredibly in the hardback to paperback nearly 75%. So, It'll cost about $30, which means I can also recommend it to my friends here in good conscience. Uh, so thanks a lot. I, I, I'm not sure this will put me onto the New York Times bestseller list, but it'll certainly make people aware that the book is now affordable. So anyways, thanks. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a pastor here in southeast Wisconsin. I'm at a church uh, that my wife and I joined while I was actually writing this book. Uh, I've only recently come on staff. This is my fourth year doing pastoral work. And before this, I taught New Testament at a seminary in Detroit, and it's been an interesting transition from academy to church. As as you may imagine, there's been kind of losses as well as gains. I, I don't often get a chance to talk about Greek grammar anymore. I tried, I did try once in a sermon, but you know, I'd rather not talk about that. So uh, I, I should also say I'm a husband and a father. My wife and I have been married for 15 years, and we've got three beautiful kids. And it's it's interesting that during the process of writing this book, my wife also kind of took a special interest in Hebrews, you know, as she puts it, probably to survive our dinner conversations for those three to four years, as my head was thinking of little beyond Hebrews and the Psalter. And anyways, her interest in the book has continued to this day, which is gratifying. So my, my interest in Hebrews, uh, it began during my doctoral studies. I, I was doing a PhD in New Testament at Trinity. Uh, Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And one semester I decided to take a quarter-term seminar on Hebrews, you know, partly because I liked the professor and partly because Hebrews was just a puzzle to me. And it was in that seminar, that kind of quarter-term seminar, that I, I discovered that Hebrews puzzled me in two areas that I was really interested in already. And one, I, I'm very interested in how biblical texts fit together. What you know, why does an author talk about this after talking about that and before he talks about this other thing, which maybe it goes under the label of discourse analysis. And and this was one area that of just intense interest for me. In Hebrews, as you know, Michael, it presents an interesting set of challenges. The other area where Hebrews puzzled me was uh, this other area where its puzzles aligned with my own interest was its use of the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian Old Testament I'd been interested in this topic since I was a Christian, became a Christian, and Hebrews is like the Mount Everest of this interest. Anyone exploring the use of the Old Testament and the New, trying to come to terms with how did the apostles put their Bibles together, they've got to try to make sense with what the author of Hebrews does with the Old Testament. So 
it was these two disciplines, discourse analysis and the use of the Old Testament and the New, you know, both you could say are kind of concerned with how texts fit together. These two places of personal interest sort of happily converge in this really wonderful letter called Hebrews. So in that semester, we had to write sort of a research paper for the course, and I decided that I was going to explore how this one psalm that was like everywhere in Hebrews, I'm talking about Psalm 110, I decided to explore how this psalm may have shaped Hebrews' argument. And I came to the conclusion after 100 or so hours of kind of preliminary research that Psalm 110, particularly Psalm 110.1 and verse 4, contained Hebrews' in Nuche, which in nutshell form, to riff on Richard Hayes' kind of insightful way of describing the role of Deuteronomy and Romans. So I just, I was intrigued by this idea that Psalm 110 may have played some sort of fundamental kind of argument directing role in Hebrews. And really to my surprise, you know, as I, as any uh, aspiring dissertation writer does, you go to see, has anybody pursued this idea? And you know, to my surprise, there were one or two authors that made similar overtures about Psalm 110's kind of preeminence in Hebrews and the, the fact that it played a substantial role in the argument, but nobody had pursued it all that far. And that's when I knew what I had to do, what I wanted to explore. And that paper then was really the first draft of my dissertation. And, and then it, it kind of threw the, it's the evolution of this dissertation into the book that we're talking about. So... Yeah, it was that it was that course that sort of launched me into uh, this this uh, exploration. And who was this New Testament professor that got you really into Hebrews? Yeah, so interestingly, it was P.T. O'Brien, so an Anglican evangelical scholar from Australia, who you, I mean, of course, you know about, who was in, in at that time writing a commentary on Hebrews in the Pillar series. Nice. Yeah, so there's a lot we could say about that particular scholar and that commentary, but he, yeah, it was just an inspiring, invigorating class as he sort of posed all the right questions about Hebrews and let us sort of intrepid uh, PhD students sort of go on hikes with him into the vistas which, uh, which Hebrews contains. Sounds great. Yeah, it was really, it was fun. I kind of think back on that wistfully now. As we make our way into the book of Hebrews now, Jared, why don't you tell us what you see as the message of Hebrews, as well as what the background situation was that led to the writing of the book of Hebrews? Yeah, great, great question. So essentially, what's Hebrews trying to do? So here's how I'd describe its arguments. Some of what I'm going to say represents conclusions that I reached in my research So for now, I'm simply going to assert my understanding, and we can, of course, talk about justification for the things I say when we talk about the argument of my book. So here's how I'd put what Hebrews is trying to do. At the heart of the audience's problems, the audience of Hebrews' problems, I I think were doubts, doubts specifically about the scriptural plausibility of a suffering Messiah. So to meet this rather urgent need— you know, the pastor wanted to allay these doubts for the community that he loved. He shows his audience that the suffering and death of the Messiah was all along anticipated in the Hebrew scriptures. Those scriptures the audience treasured, that the, that the author refers to so substantively throughout the letter, that those scriptures that the audience treasured, 
the, the author tells them Messiah's death was anticipated in those scriptures, and not least in a text that was presumably standing at the center of their kind of fledgling Christian confession, Psalm 110. So I, I suggest that if the audience was willing to accept the fact of Jesus' resurrection and to interpre- interpret that fact as his messianic enthronement, which is, of course, what other early Christian application of the psalm to Jesus' resurrection implies. If the audience was willing to do that, based perhaps on overwhelming historical, empirical, witness-attested evidence that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, if they were willing to to interpret that historical act as the fulfillment of Psalm 110.1, then I suggest that the author comes along and says, hey, the answer to your problem is just a few lines away in the fourth verse of that psalm, the answer to their problem, how on earth could it be that the long-awaited Messiah was this Jesus figure who had been crucified by the Romans on a hill outside Jerusalem? Grant that this Jesus was raised and that his resurrection could plausibly be interpreted as corroboration of his claim to be Messiah, to be the one described in Psalm 110.1. If you grant that, the problem of a suffering Messiah could then be resolved by taking a fresh look at what that same psalm says just a few verses later in Psalm 110.4. So, so kind of in other words, what I found when examining the author's use of Psalm 110 in Hebrews was that he used this text to help his friends come to terms with what was one of the central problems in early Christianity, especially, as you know, early Jewish Christianity. How can it be that the long-awaited Messiah could be a suffering Messiah? It wasn't only Peter who had trouble kind of jiving that fact with his expectations from the Messiah. You know, here I'm thinking of that place in Mark's gospel where where Peter identifies Jesus as Messiah, and then he kind of balks at Jesus' statement that as Messiah, he would then suffer and be killed. Hebrews comes along to solve that problem, and that's the main thing that I think Hebrews does. But I also see, so that's kind of the main burden that he's trying to address— I also think that he's addressing two other very much related problems along the way. And for both of these, I think Psalm 110 plays kind of a critical role. So I think the author's attention to Psalm 110.1b, the second part of that verse, this idea that the Messiah would be enthroned and that his enemies would be progressively but not automatically subdued, I, I think the author's attention to that fact And then to this analogy that he draws between the wilderness generation and his own audience, between people who'd experienced climactic redemption but who had not yet reached the promised land, I I think the author's attention to both of these things suggests that Hebrews is not only concerned with explaining Messiah's suffering, I think it's also concerned with explaining the community's own suffering. How could it be that the Messiah is enthroned, yet we're still sort of muddling along here in the wilderness And I think it's interesting that the author responds to this problem by reminding his audience that the Hebrew scriptures, I would say God, always anticipated, he always intended for there to be this gap between Messiah's enthronement and the full expression of his reign, between redemption and consummation. And this gap, I argue, has had been anticipated all along in that little word, until, that's found in Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The author wants his friends to know that the presence of suffering, of unsubdued enemies, it doesn't call into question the presence of the Messianic era. This gap had always been anticipated all along. And, and so I think that's another way, another situation that the audience is addressing. But, but even more than that, there's one more thing I see going on. 
And that's this idea that the author pays attention not only to uh, Jesus' suffering, not only to this delay, but also to Jesus' absence. I think this is kind of interesting. We we see this, for instance, when he talks about Jesus being in heaven in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Messiah has come. He's been enthroned. But you could imagine the audience saying, but where is he? And the answer, you know, where on earth is he? And the answer the author gives is, well, he's not on earth. And this shouldn't cause you any concern in the sense that Jesus' absence, the Messiah's absence, doesn't call into question the presence of the Messianic era. After all, he argues, how else could the Messiah inaugurate that anticipated new covenant except by consecrating its heavenly sacred space? He he, he has to be absent. How, how else can we uh, inaugurate this new thing that we anticipated he would he would inaugurate. How else could he inaugurate the new covenant without being in heaven? So I, I actually think this kind of gathers up into its fold to the attention the author pays to the fact that though Messiah is presently absent in heaven, he's still available. He's 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 available and he's willing to help his sons and daughters now during their kind of liminal period of distress in the wilderness. You know this. These are those pastoral spots, particular in Hebrews, where, where he says, look, Jesus' present ministry is, yeah, he's absent, but necessarily so, but he's not unconcerned. He's, a, he's not unavailable. He's present. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's available in heaven. Which, and I suspect that that was kind of extraordinarily comforting to these beleaguered Christians in the first century. So, yeah, so that's a mouthful, I suppose, but that's how I understand the situation of Hebrews. That that's how I would begin to answer the question, what's Hebrews trying to do? You mentioned, Jared, the pivotal role of verse 4 of Psalm 110. So for the sake of our listeners, let me go ahead and read that for us. Psalm 110 verse 4 reads, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Mm. Now, Jared, walk us through the message of Hebrews. How does the author develop his argument in each part of the letter? And then how does Psalm 110 contribute to that message? Yeah, and it, that was a good idea to read the text too. And Psalm 110.1 that I refer to throughout also probably uh, should be just put on record. This is where I'm quoting from memory, but it says something to the effect of, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So it's that verse and the one, Michael, that you just read that sort of, for me, provide the soil out of which Hebrews and its argument grows. So, yeah, so to the, your your question, what, what what's the argument in each part of the letter? How, how does the author, if that's the situation that I'm, I'm suggesting is implied, uh, how does the author go ahead and address that situation? So, and I, I suspect if folks, folks are going to find my big picture of what Hebrews is trying to do persuasive, if that situation that I just described uh, is going to be compelling, then, then I really do need to show how Hebrews' argument sort of progressively implies that all the way along. So let, let me talk about what the author is trying to do in each part of his argument. This is kind of the meat and potatoes of my book. The, the heart of chapters two, three, and four. Here, I'll just simply give a flyover, and we'll return a, a, as necessary to the individual pieces that I sort of summarize here. But even before sort of giving this flyover, let me just make two introductory sort of comments, just to uh, be helpful for your listeners and maybe uh, forestall any criticism. Not not that your listeners ever give that, of course, but let's let's suppose they may. 
let me make two introductory points first. The author's argument that I'm talking about in Hebrews, I suggest that it's primarily carried forward in his expositional units. So you know, and your your listeners surely know, that Hebrews is a little bit unlike other books in the New Testament. It goes back and forth between exposition and exhortation. And I'm suggesting that it's those expositions uh, that sort of fundamentally carry forward the author's argument. The, the, this point has received some pushback in the reviews of my book, but, but and I, I don't really mean to sound cheeky here, maybe a little bit. I think I'm right on this one. So that's to say one thing. When I talk about Hebrews' argument, I'm talking about those expositional sections in his book. And so my second introductory point is simply to say the author has basically three expositional moves in his book, three parts to this expositional argument. The first part's found in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, roughly. There's a little exhortation sort of tucked in the middle of that, but but chapters 1 and 2, the, the next part of the exposition is found in Hebrews 5 to 7, and then the, the final part of his expositional argument is found in chapters 8 to 10. So three parts, chapters 1 and 2, 5 to 7, 8 to 10, and each of these three parts kind of gets its own chapter in my book. So let me just here briefly give kind of a flyover of each of these parts of Hebrews. Uh, here's how the author, I, I suggest in my book, here's how he uses Psalm 110 to argue for the scriptural plausibility of the Christian gospel. That's kind of my summation of the situation of the, the hearers. So he, he, let me start there in Hebrews 1 and 2. And In this first part of his argument, the author, this is Hebrews 1 and 2, he uses Psalm 110 to do three things. He uses Psalm 110 first to interpret Jesus' resurrection as his messianic enthronement. That, that's what I think we find in chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. Second, he then uses Psalm 110 in chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, to connect Jesus' enthronement with his fulfillment of Psalm 8's vision for humanity. So this is actually my favorite part of Hebrews. It's, it's my very favorite part of my book, if I can say that without sounding self-aggrandizing. It was the very first part I wrote, and you know, I can feel a bit nostalgic about this part. It's just extraordinary how the author does this. Um, I'll, I'll, I won't say more on that right now. And then, so the, the, the final kind of mini section in this first exposition, this is chapter 2, 10 to 18. The author then uses Psalm 110. He's already used it to show that it's, it states that Messiah has been enthroned. He uses it to connect that Messiah was enthroned and in doing so, he's fulfilled this vision that Psalm 8 expects all redeemed humanity, humanity to experience. Now in this third part, he says, he uses Psalm 110 to begin to explain why Jesus was enthroned through suffering. Why was it that the human vocation sort of anticipated in, described in Psalm 8, quoted in chapter 2, 5 to 9, why was that vocation that was lost due to sin in the fall— why was it that that vocation could be regained only by a suffering Messiah? That's the question he answers preliminarily in 2, 10 to 18. He shows us why a suffering Messiah was needed to solve this thing I call in my book, the human problem. That's Hebrews 1 and 2. So that's the first part of the author's argument. Now the second and third parts. What's he doing there? This is Hebrews 5 to 7 and Hebrews 8 to 10. Here's what I see going on there. 
and this is key, I think, in Hebrews 5 to 7 and in Hebrews 8 to 10, chapters 3 and 4 of my own book, the author corroborates that initial sketch he made in Hebrews 1 and 2. He, he corroborates that initial argument, he, that initial, initial sketch that he's just made of the Christian gospel, specifically that the solution to the human problem was through the death of the Messiah. He comes in chapters 5 through 7, 8 to 10, and says, let me show you that 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 thing I've just sketched is actually plausible, bound up already in texts that you treasure. And to do this, he continues to use Psalm 110.1, but now, kind of for the first time in this in the New Testament, this clearly, he uses Psalm 110 verse 4, this talk of the Messiah being a Melchizedekian priest. So, for instance, he argues in Hebrews 5 to 7, that Psalm 110.1 and verse 4 show that the Messiah was expected to be a superior priest. Okay, that's right on the surface of Psalm 110 verse 4. But then in Hebrews 8 to 10, he argues from one from Psalm 110.1 and 4 that this messianic priest was then expected, anticipated already in that psalm, to solve the human problem through death. So he's just drawing inferences out of this text. It's like he's massaging over and over this text showing his audience, look how much is already bound up in this piece of the Hebrew scriptures that you already treasure. And here I'll simply add that I, I, I find it interesting the way Hebrews is sort of structured on a macro level when we think of its exposition. Um, before the author introduces the Levitical cult, so sacrifices, priesthood, that's what I mean by cult. Before he introduces the Levitical cult or Melchizedek, so, so before he gets to his argument in Hebrews 5 and through 7 and 8 to 10, he first establishes the larger context into which these things find their place. So priests, covenants, sacrifices, and sacred spaces, kind of the stuff of Hebrews 5 to 10, they were established with a larger story in mind. They were introduced to solve, or, or at the very least to prepare to solve, this human problem. So, so these institutions in Hebrews 5 to 10 were introduced for the very purpose of enabling humanity to regain the glory and honor. That's the language of Psalm 8, to, to regain the glory and honor forfeited in there, or I should probably say in our fall into sin. In other words, before we look at the author's argument as a whole, we see this. Before Jesus is introduced as the better priest, the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that we see that he is first the better or true human, the, the better or true Adam. So, so yeah, that's how I would see the argument sort of from a bird's eye view, Michael, of, of all the different parts of the author's expositions. Thank you. That's helpful. Now, Jared, could you tell us a little bit more about the way you read Hebrews 1, 5 through 14? You had said earlier that this part of Hebrews interprets Jesus' resurrection as his messianic enthronement. Some scholars, though, think that the author is also saying something about Jesus' divinity. Yeah, other scholars do uh, very much see in Hebrews 1, 5 to 14, both sort of uh, scripture used to suggest that uh, the Son is the anticipated Messiah, but also that there are scriptures used to say that he is divine. So, you know, as you yeah, as you know, I spent quite a bit of space in my second chapter showing that each of the citations from the Hebrew scriptures there in one five to fourteen, there's kind of like seven 
main ones in this catena of citations. Uh, they're brought forward to talk about messianic enthronement. I, I, I try to make um, that case as strongly as I can. Jesus is greater than angels because he's the enthroned Messiah. So he fulfills expectations about the Messiah, excuse me, that are found already in the Old Testament. Well, as you say, it, it has been argued by, by many people, um, in, including my own uh, advisor, uh, that was uh, privy to the original kind of instantiation of this book. It, it's been argued that the author is saying more than this, that, that he's saying that Jesus is greater than angels, not simply because he's the enthroned Messiah, but also because he's divine. And I, I guess I'd just say this, that's a claim that I agree is made elsewhere in the New Testament. I just don't think that's what the argument here in Hebrews 1, 5 to 14 is doing it, it just doesn't fit with the audience's situation. This is what I mean. If there's any sense in which the author is trying to convince his audience of Jesus' superiority here to angels so that they will not abandon their Christian commitments, that's, that's, that's the big problem in Hebrews. They, the, the Christ, their, their commitment to their Christian commitment, their commitment to the Christian confession is kind of, uh, uh, they're, they're losing grip on it. So, so if he's trying to do that, then I would suggest it wouldn't make any sense for him to propose this line of argumentation that then requires Christian commitments in order to be persuasive, which is to say it wouldn't make sense for him to propose a line of argument trying to, hey, don't give up on your Christian confession and to, do, to convince you that you shouldn't do that. Uh, the author then assumes a readiness on their part to say it's okay to take Old Testament texts that are talking about God and apply them without any justification to Jesus. I just don't think it would make sense for him to do this if he is trying to be persuasive. And, and there's a ton more I'd want to say on this one, including how you know the, the devil would be in the detail. So, okay, if that's true, show me that each Old Testament citation there in 1, 5 to 14 can, can plausibly be read messianic. Well, I try to do that. That's that's what a bulk of my second chapter is about. So I just encourage any of your listeners, uh, if this strikes them as as uh, kind of passing strange, to withhold judgment until they've at least read in a sympathetic way as possible what I say. And just to be clear, this way of he reading Hebrews 1, 5 to 14 isn't something I just dreamed up on my own. It's not without precedent. I also try to show this too. I'm just convinced, I, I guess I'd say, this part of the book has received some pushback in the reviews, and it's understandable, but, but I'm convinced that it makes the most sense of the audience's situation. And I'll just add this. It, it makes the most sense of how the author introduces the argument in 1, 5 to 14. So he says, look, I'm going to show you, I'm going to talk about ways that Jesus became greater than the angels. I'm going to show you ways that Jesus became greater than the angels, not ways in which, according to Christianity, he's always been greater, always been better. It would be slightly odd for the author to suggest one quality that makes the son superior is that he's now divine. One just doesn't become divine, at least in any authentically Judeo-Christian sense. So, yeah, that that's a key part of my argument. I think it can be substantiated, and I think your listeners will— find that an interesting part, I, I, I hope, in the book itself. So yeah, thanks for asking that question. 
And as you noted, your view is not without precedent. There are various current scholars who hold the same position. All right, well, that was a helpful taste of the argument in Hebrews 1 through 2. Why don't you tell us more then about the next section, Hebrews 5 through 7, which presents Jesus as a priest. How does his priesthood fit into Hebrews' argument? And again, how does Psalm 110 contribute to that message? Yeah, okay. Well, well, as I said earlier, in, in Hebrews 5 to 7, the author begins to prove the scriptural plausibility of what he's just said in Hebrews 1 and 2. He begins to show that that narrative that he's just sketched about a suffering Messiah restoring humanity to its original glory, that that was anticipated in the dual claims of Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 110.4. So let let me briefly just show how I see this working in chapters 5 to 7. How does chapter 5 to 7 contribute uh, to the argument. And, and there's three moves in this part of Hebrews. Uh, let me just talk through each of these sort of mini moves within this larger exposition. So first, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. Then second, I'll say something about Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. And then third, about Hebrews 7, 11 to 28. So, so first, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. Here, I think the author is simply proving that the Messiah was expected to be a priest. And enter for the very first time into the New Testament a direct citation of Psalm 110, verse 4. And as priests, the author goes on to insist, the Messiah was expected to be the source of eternal salvation, the kind of salvation that was actually required to restore humanity to the glory and honor promised them in Psalm 8. So again, I argue in my book that if the audience was prepared to interpret Jesus' resurrection, as his messianic enthronement, that's what we can assume by his use of Psalm 110.1. What the author now then says about Jesus here in 5.1-10 should easily follow, since it comes from the same psalm. So that's Hebrews 5.1-10. Messiah was expected to be a priest, and therefore as priest, to, to offer uh, eternal salvation. Now, in 7.1-10, the author then moves kind of very almost inexorably to this next logical deduction. Here the author argues that that this priest that was anticipated in Psalm 110 verse 4 is greater than Levi himself, the sort of progenitor of the entire Old Testament priesthood, the priesthood that is described throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And because Messiah is greater because he, unlike Levi and the priesthood that followed from Levi, he, the, this messianic priest, is described as holding his priestly post permanently. Th- th- this is the author now drawing an inference from the fact that Psalm 110 verse 4 says, you are a priest forever. Be- and therefore the author is saying because his priesthood had this guarantee of permanence, that inevitably makes his priesthood superior to Levi's. So that's the argument there in 7, 1 to 10. Now, third, He then moves beyond this and says, all right, here the author draws an inference from this same line, you're a priest forever. So he's again riffing on Psalm 110 verse 4, and it's note about the permanence of the Messianic priest. If, he argues, Messiah's priesthood is permanent, which again is what 7, 1 to 10 was all about, if that's true, then unlike Levi's priesthood, Messiah's priesthood is able to perfect Otherwise, and this is really a clever bit of reasoning on his part, otherwise, 
if Messiah's priesthood could not perfect, then it would not have come with assurances of permanence. So the fact that Psalm 110.4 says your priesthood is forever suggests that, that this priesthood will be able to do what priesthoods were instituted to do because it lasts forever. Were it not able to do what it, what, what, it, what it was instituted to do, it wouldn't have come with that assurance. It too, like Levi's priesthood, would have been replaced. But because Psalm 110 forces Messiah's priesthood remains forever, then Messiah's priesthood doesn't need to be replaced. It, it can perfect, or, or to borrow language from 5, 1 to 10, it can provide eternal salvation. Or again, to borrow language from Hebrews 2, it can lead many sons and daughters to glory. So, in short, Psalm 110.4 confirms that opening narrative in chapters 1 and 2 quite nicely. A permanent priest can perfect, and a permanent priest is precisely what we find in Psalm 110.4. So that's what the author of Hebrews is doing in that middle part of, of his argument. That makes sense. Well, let's move on now to the third part of the exposition of the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 through 10. And again, the role of Psalm 110 in that section. And tell us especially about this idea of a messianic sacrifice. Yeah, you bet. Uh, and this this is, of course, as your listeners will know, and you know, Michael, this is a dense section in Hebrews. It's the final part of his exposition, chapters 8 through 10, kind of final move in his argument. Not the final move in the book, of course. We We've got a series of exhortations that follow from 1019 on throughout the rest of the the book, the letter. So in this final move in his argument, I suggest that the author demonstrates that Psalm 110, it not only anticipated that a Messianic priest would solve humanity's problem, he's already done that, but, and this is just a breathtaking almost, it not only anticipated that this Messianic priest would solve the human problem, but it also the author insists it also anticipated how Messiah would do that. Yeah, yeah, Psalm 110 says Messiah will solve it, but but it also says or implies how the Messiah will solve the human problem. So here's how I see this part of the argument working. Uh, the, the author returns at the beginning of chapter 8, the beginning of this final section, to two things he sort of mentioned in passing. He kind of dropped these little hints like breadcrumbs, but he doesn't say anything about them. He drops them at the end of chapter 7. And it's the, this idea of that, that the Messianic priest, he oversees a better covenant and he offers a better sacrifice. He, he mentions both of these things in chapter 7, but he doesn't say much about them. And here the author suggests that both of these things, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, those two things were themselves anticipated in Psalm 110. And here, I think, is the really interesting part. He finds both of these things in Psalm 110, not as inferences, once again, from the priest's permanence. That's kind of the uh, bit of Psalm 110 that he uh, riffed on in chapters 5 to 7. He sort of used that inference all up in those chapters. Now he sees these two things both a better covenant and a better sacrifice implied in Psalm 110's claim that the Messiah is enthroned in heaven. So when, when Psalm 110 one says, sit at my right hand, ostensibly near the right hand of the throne on high, which is heaven, the, the author now is able to distill from that fact the, the, that the Messiah would be associated with a better covenant and better sacrifices. So it's not the permanence 
that's meditated on in chapters 8 to 10, but the priest's location. And that focus, as I say in my book, it provides the foundation for all of all of this final exhortation exposition. It's this inference from Psalm 110 that gives the author the final proof he needs uh, for the narrative that he sketched all the way back in chapters 1 and 2. According to Psalm 110, the heavenly enthroned Messiah would solve the human problem by inaugurating a new covenant through his own self-sacrifice. All right, let me me see if I can explain this in a way that would be persuasive for our listeners. Here's what I see going on. Let me just tick through the different parts of Hebrews 8 to 10. There's there's four sections. There's chapter 8, there's chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, chapter 9, verses 11 to 28, and then chapter 10, 1 to 18. I'll just kind of quickly move through each of these and show part, the function each is playing in this larger argument. So first, this is Hebrews 8. Here the author says that Jesus' heavenly position implies that he must offer different, and more than different, he must offer better sacrifices. His heavenly status, we're also told, means that he mediates a better covenant. A covenant, importantly, already anticipated in the Hebrew scriptures. This this is where we find that long citation from Jeremiah 31. In fact, I think this is the longest Old Testament citation anywhere in the New Testament. So that's Hebrews 8. Heavenly position implies a better sacrifice. And though the logic isn't totally clear yet, he also says that the heavenly position implies that Jesus mediates a better covenant. Next, second, this is Hebrews 9, 1 to 10. Here the author tells us that what Messiah does is nothing short of what the rest of the Hebrew scriptures pointed to all along. Specifically, here in 9, 1 to 10, he highlights the provisionality of the old covenant and its cult, its priests and sacrifices. That covenant, he says, it failed to give worshipers access to God's presence, which is to say it failed to give worshipers access to heaven. They didn't do that. But what they did do, he insists, is they professed their own inability to perfect. That's the message they meant to deliver, the author says. It's almost as if he's saying, look, I'm not making this up. This kind of self-confessed inadequacy that I'm saying adheres to the old covenant was self-confessed. I'm in agreement, he's saying, with what your own Bibles were already saying. So that's Hebrews 9, 1 to 10. Now, kind of the densest part of Hebrews, uh, one of the most extraordinary, in my estimation, parts of Hebrews, probably my second favorite place in all the, the letter, is Hebrews 9, 11 to 28. Here's what the author is doing here. Here he shows why Jesus' heavenly location required the sort of death and by implication the sort of sacrifice described all the way back at the beginning of Hebrews. Here's how he puts it. Because Jesus serves in heaven, he obviously serves in a new sacred space, one associated with the new covenant implied by Psalm 110's anticipation of a non-Levitical priest. And since covenants and their sacred spaces are inaugurated, since they're consecrated with bloody sacrifices, they had to be, Jesus' heavenly location by itself implies the necessity of better sacrifices. If he's serving this in this new sacred space, and if all sacred spaces are 
inaugurated, consecrated by blood, then Jesus' new sacred space demands a different and, in fact, better sacrifice. How else would we expect this new sacred space to be consecrated or the new covenant that's associated with it to be inaugurated? What else would we expect since heaven is where God himself dwells and since access into God's presence requires this new level of perfection beyond that found in the Levitical cult and in the Mosaic covenant? This kind of direct priestly access to God requires full forgiveness. So so the author insists Jesus' sacrifice was precisely the sort of sacrifice that was required by Jesus' heavenly priesthood. It's precisely the sort of sacrifice implied by Psalm 110, which I think that's a pretty incredible piece of reasoning. He, he sees that the Messianic priest is heavenly, and from there he reasons the necessity of Jesus' superior sacrifice. So that's Hebrews 9, 11 to 28. And I just think that's, that's a, a, it's an amazing part of the letter. But finally, one last move in his argument. This is Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. This is the part of Hebrews you're, you, you may know that where the author cites from Psalm 40, uh, that, that beautiful um, line that says, Here I've come uh, to do your will. And p- those words are put in the mouth of Jesus. Well, well he, he, here's or put in the mouth of the Messiah, which the author identifies as Jesus. Here in, in 10, 1 to 18, the author returns he, he wants to underscore, kind of highlight one more time this important fact that the Old Covenant already confessed its own inadequacy. This is why Hebrews, I just say as kind of an aside, isn't super sessionistic or anti-Semitic. It's trying to say not Christians are better than uh, the New Testament's better than the Old Testament or Christians are better than Jews. It's trying to say all this stuff that I'm saying was in your Bible already, and, 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 and it's not as if he's trying to read it against its grain. And I think you can also see how this would have been so helpful for his audience. He's saying, don't be surprised at what Christians are claiming about the Messiah. Your Bibles anticipated what's happened all along. And I would hear just as a little one more footnote, um, this would be a great time to just recommend to your listeners G.B. Caird's seminal article on the self-confessed inadequacy of the Old Covenant. It's a short little piece, um, so t- go find that, read it. So so let me now sum up what I think the author is doing. He's showing here one more time that the Old Covenant confessed its own inadequacy. So the author here says, it's no surprise that the Old Covenant sacrifices were inadequate what else would we expect if the covenant that instituted them was self-confessedly provisional? And the old covenant sacrifices were inadequate then, the author insists, if they were. Let me say this again. If the old covenant sacrifices were inadequate, then the author comes along and says that prophetic critique of sacrifices found in Psalm 40 could be read to anticipate not only the abrogation of the Old Covenant's cult, the doing away with its sacrifices, but also their replacement by the Messiah's own self-sacrifice. Here, in other words, if the author is arguing sin is done away with only by the shedding of blood, which he's already said, then whatever replaced the Old Covenant sacrifices couldn't be metaphorical 
There had to be blood, and it had to be Messiah's blood. So, so we read Psalm 140 and the Messiah saying, here I am, I've come to do your will, as the Messiah is saying, I've come to offer my life. So here in 10, 1 to 18, the author also draws kind of one final inference from Psalm 110, kind of one final place in that psalm where he says, I'm going to show you one more thing in that text that will be useful for you. The priest isn't only permanent, and he's not only in heaven, but here in this final part of Hebrews, we're told that he's seated. Remember Psalm 110, 1, sit at my right hand. And if he's seated, this, of course, is meant to suggest that his sacrificial work is completed. Why else would a priest be seated? So that that kind of in short is this bird's eye view of the argument that I try to make in my book. And here I just say, maybe from the perspective of, of a pastor now, um, Hebrews is really a remarkable piece of pastoral theology. Here we've got a pastor, the author, who meets his friend's really urgent need uh, not with some facile bit of pastoral advice, kind of, you know, you can do it, you know, something you may find in a bookshelf at Barnes & Noble. No offense to Barnes & Noble. I- instead, he says, look, I'm going to meet your really urgent need with a vigorous and brand new piece of Christology. I'm going to come up with something brand new, which is to say, it's it's so thoughtful and it's such a great model for doing pastoral work because you find in Hebrews pers- perspectives that are developed on Jesus that aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. So I think it gives us not, not that coming up with brand new stuff is is a model for pastoral ministry, but just this idea of the author's example of 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 listening so well to his community's problems and thinking so deeply on the message of the Christian gospel that he he addresses their needs kind of at their roots with something fresh and and what I uh, presume was exceedingly helpful. Well, that has been a fascinating overview of the letter to the Hebrews. Thank you. It almost seems as if the letter to the Hebrews is something of a sermon on Psalm 110. What do you think? I think so. I I try to sort of hint at that in my book, Um, but maybe not just one sermon, maybe a collection sort of uh, of of sermons that were sort of part of maybe you know maybe this is now anachronistic but a sermon series although it's interesting that the author ends by saying bear with my brief word of exhortation so maybe this wouldn't have been too long for one of the author's sermons maybe it was just one sermon all right bonus question who was Melchizedek <laughs> That is a great question. Uh, yeah, so I think he was a historical figure who uh, comes out of nowhere and plays this wonderful sort of literary. He's a wonderful. The author makes a wonderful sort of literary argument about him because we don't know where he came from. He sort of pops onto the pages of Genesis. Therefore, the author can infer the kinds of things that he infers in chapter seven, one through three. You know, of course, there's all kinds of. Uh, Christian uh, debate about Melchizedek's sort of identity. Is this a pre-incarnate uh, instance, instantiation of, of the Lord Jesus uh, or, or what? So I, I think I've got a pretty long excursus in my book on this. So your readers will have to go there to check out what I have to say. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Jared, before we let you go, are you working on any other projects you can tell us about? 
Yeah, thanks, Michael. And yeah, I would want to just say, as I before I answer this final one, this has just been a joy. You know, as I said at the beginning, uh, I, I'm in pastoral ministry now, so it's not every day that I get to talk at this level of depth about uh, the scriptures. Not not that people in our churches don't need thinking on this level. It's just you you don't always have a chance to sort of lay out all your homework. They more often than not, you're kind of just you need to kind of come to your conclusions and share those in pers- persuasive ways. So it's been a real joy. So thanks a lot. You are most welcome, friend. Yeah. So I took a little break after I wrote this book um, and became a pastor. And I did a few other projects sort of. Uh, it was interesting. I, I finished working on Hebrews. And for a while, I just I couldn't get myself to get back into it. It, it felt like uh, I needed some kind of sabbatical from it, not not because I didn't enjoy it. it. It almost was like it was so precious to me. I didn't have the emotional energy to enter back into it. But I took a break from Hebrews and published a few other pro- or worked on a few other projects. I did a little project on the atonement, uh, looking at uh, an old figure, John Davenaugh, uh, who was who a participant in the Synod of Dort, which, which I suspect your listeners won't give, care about that. But um, I also just finished working on a book with a friend of mine. Um, it's coming out early next year on the story of Israel in Romans 9 to 11. So uh, you can surely see how this is kind of of a piece with my interest in Hebrews. And this was a book I kind of dreamed up with and and dreamed up and then I ended up collaborating with on a friend. It's one of those multiple views books and Kriegel is actually going to publish it ho- hopefully uh, early spring of 2019. Um, but I'm also working slowly on a book with two two friends of mine, uh, Kevin McFadden and Chris Bruno in the in InterVarsity's New Studies and Biblical Theology series. You, you know, those wonderful little gray books edited by Don Carson on biblical theological themes. And the working title of this book is something like Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told Israel's Story. And and in this book, I I finally get to jump back into Hebrews and try to explore what we can learn from Hebrews and specifically from Hebrews 11 about how the earliest Christians put their Bibles together. how they synthesized Israel's story with their own. So, you know, I will say too, um, you know, one of these days I'd really like to work on a short pastoral and readable commentary on Hebrews, something maybe in the tradition of Derek Kidner or John Stott or this guy, Dale Ralph Davis, um, kind of punchy, pithy, short and readable But, uh, you know, whether I got one of those in me is an open question, but I'd like to give it a shot. Jared, it's been a fascinating look at the book of Hebrews with you. All the best on these other projects. Yeah, thank you. All right, friends, you've been listening to Jared Compton speaking about his recent book, Psalm 110 and the Logic of Hebrews. You can find a link to that book on our website. Until next time, goodbye.